Well, friends, I want to go ahead and invite you guys to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 5. We are going to cover some serious ground this morning, so strap on your seatbelts. Fortunately, it's some amazing ground to cover. This story is incredible, uh, and we are about to pick up our pace. The last few weeks, we have taken our time through the early chapters of Exodus because there's so much work being done in those early chapters to set the stage, to get us ready for what's about to happen, to do the character development that helps us understand what we're watching, what's going on, the significance of it as it starts to play out. This is the part of the series, though, where we start to jump into the action that we've been prepared for and start to really cover some ground. So fair warning up front, from this point forward, we're not going to cover every single verse in the book of Exodus. We are going to be jumping to the main parts of the story that move the plot along and covering something like 15 chapters in the next five weeks. That said, the story is arranged in such a beautiful way, such an ingenious way, that we, by following the twists and turns of what this author draws our attention to, are going to get an incredible portrait that I think comes through loud and clear beginning with what we see this morning about God, one of the things we've been saying throughout the the series in Exodus is that the point of the book, the main point, among other things that it is, the main point of it is to help us see who God is. It is many things. It is brilliant. It is an incredible work of art. It is an influential document that just echoes down through all of history in ways that are so fascinating to follow. But beyond all of that, underneath all of that, at its bedrock level, this book is meant to tell us who God is. It is through this series of events that God stands before the world and says, this is me. Now you know. So we're trying to, try, we're trying to understand who does this book show us that God is. One of the things we're going to see this morning, and this is a really important theme for the rest of the book, is that this announcement by God of who he is to the world, it involves God's sovereignty both over the suffering that's brought into the lives of his people and over the evil powers that brought it. This morning especially, we come into a question that haunts believers everywhere. At some time, in one way or another, if, if, if you're a follower of Jesus, you will wonder, why does God bring suffering or allow pain in the lives of his people? People who trust him and depend on him and claim his promise to be for them. The story we're going to look at this morning shows us not an answer to that question, certainly not to all the many sub-questions that lie up under that question. But it does get at the question. It comes straight at it. It doesn't blink. And what it offers us is some encouragement that I want you to leave with this morning. Now, now, we're going to get there. I want to first set the stage and read the opening part of this story. So here's the stage. What we've seen so far, the the context for what we're going to read this morning, is God trying to wrestle Moses towards a confidence that will lead him into Egypt to go toe-to-toe with the most powerful man in his world and to tell that man to take his hands off of that man's labor force. That's a, that's, a, that's a job that Moses has come to somewhat reluctantly, let's say. And we've been spending a lot of time looking at how God convinces him to do it. Both at God's intent to save his people and how he gets his people ready for that job. Moses has been wrestling back and forth and then finally gives in. In chapter 4, after, what we le- where, after where we left off last week, we see Moses go back to Egypt 
and do just as God had told them. Start with uh, the elders of, of the people of Israel. Tell them that you've met with me and that I've told you that I'm going to lead out the people. Tell them first, then tell the rest of the people. So Moses does that, and guess what happens? Exactly what God said would happen. They believe him. He takes the staff that God had given him to show them some signs that will help them to believe. And he does exactly the signs that God set out for him to do, the snake sign and the leprosy sign, and, 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 and they believe. So far, so good. The response of the people was incredible. Look at verse 31 of chapter 4. The people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he'd seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. And we're here thinking, imagining Moses' hopes rising. Game on. Here we go. Just like he said. You can almost imagine him thinking, hey, <laughs> the staff actually works. You know, I can get used to this. You know, this thing is, uh, yeah, it, it, wow. Let's go find Pharaoh. Let's see what he has to say about my staff. Well, not so fast. There's a larger story coming together here, a story with a point to make, a story with a God to reveal. And for that God to be revealed, things are going to have to get worse before they get better. And that's where we pick up this morning. What I want to do is read the first section of, um, of Exodus chapter 5. I want you to see the whole chapter 5 is going to be raising a question that the next 10 chapters are going to answer for us. The question is, who is the Lord? Moses comes in the name of this Lord that he says he's met with, but who is that, really? The question gets raised in chapter 5 in some ways I want to help you see. And then an answer begins to unfold in chapters 6 and 7 that will continue into the plague stories that we'll look at next week. We want to see the question raised, who is the Lord? Understand that question. Feel something of the weight of it in their lives, in this situation, but also in our own. And then start to see how the answer God gives begins to encourage us. I want to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word. I'm just going to read the first paragraph of chapter 5. Beginning of verse 1. Afterward, after the people had heard and believed and worshipped, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. So far, so good. But, verse 2, Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, trying again, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, Let us go and offer a sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. This is God's word. You can be seated. Moses and Aaron go straight to Pharaoh. They give him the message that God had given them to pass on. They pass it on as his, not as theirs. They say, thus says the Lord. The people had believed. 
The people had bowed low and worshipped when they'd heard the message. But Pharaoh was a different audience, and he isn't having it. Pharaoh's response to what Moses and Aaron tell him is a question that hangs over, like I mentioned before, hangs over the next 10 chapters. Think about this question as a big title, a big heading, in all caps and bold face above everything that happens in the next 10 chapters. Who is the Lord? A question that God is intent to answer. You've got to feel the weight of this question. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? If you want to understand everything we're going to cover next. I want to try to help you see the weight of this question, feel it, through showing how three different sets of people in chapter 5 experience a version of this same question. Who is the Lord? Beginning with Pharaoh, I mean, it's his question. Pharaoh's first up. For, for him, it's less a genuine question than it is a challenge. Did you guys pick up on that, just in the tone of, of how this story reads? He's not really wanting to know who the Lord is. He's trying to say... I don't know him. He's no one to me. Who is this Lord that you bring? That's a major statement, especially for an Egyptian to make. Egyptians were comfortable with a pantheon of gods, lots of gods, and different territories having their own gods. It wouldn't have been surprised to him to hear that the Hebrews had their own. But what kind of God lets his people get enslaved? These people are at my mercy. Why should I care about their God who let it happen? I don't know the Lord. I'm not going to let Israel go. You can see the tone of his question. For him, it's it's an almost... Uh, it's, not, it's a rhetorical question that's meant as a jab, a challenge. And that he means it in this way comes out clearly in, the, in what he does next, what we just read. He, he hears them claim that there is a God who owns them, who rules over them, who owns them as his own people. He hears that claim and he makes his counter move. You think this co- these people belong to someone else? I'll show you who they belong to. They're mine. They make my bricks. And now they're going to do it without all the resources we once provided for them so they were close to hand. If, if, he, he thinks the reason they have time to sit back and wonder about whether they can go out into the wilderness and, and worship for three days is that, they're, is that they've just, they're twiddling their thumbs. The work isn't filling their, their hours. So let's double it, essentially, by making them go out and collect their own materials that they then bring back and make into bricks. He's doubling down on his ownership of these people and his right to whatever their lives can offer. And in verses 10 to 14, the taskmasters and the foremen of the people go out and do exactly what Pharaoh said. They pass on the message. They make sure that the bricks keep coming in at the same rate. And when they don't come in at the same rate, Pharaoh's taskmasters, well, they're, they're beaten. They're beating the foremen of Israel who who couldn't get the job done. The first person who raises this question is Pharaoh, and for him it's a challenge. The second group of people that interact with this question in their own way are these foremen. These are people who belong to Israel, who've been set in leadership over these groups of slaves who are doing this work. And if there are any sign of where Israel is at this point, they're wondering who the Lord is too. Now, for a while, they had, they had worshipped They were hopeful. They thought maybe this was going to be what they'd been hoping for all along. Now their work has doubled and they're getting beaten for for working themselves to the bone and they're tired of it. So what do they do? Verse 15. The foreman of the people of Israel cry out to the Lord, asking him to deliver them. Now that's what they did back in chapter 2. This time they cry out, same words, to Pharaoh. 
Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. You see what's happening here? Israel, at least their foremen, they have seen the point of Pharaoh's counter move. They're ready to give the title back to Pharaoh. You're the Lord. We are your servants. Please give us relief. Rejected by Pharaoh, they take their anger out on Moses and Aaron. Look at verse 19. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. So they met Moses and Aaron, who were out there waiting for them, as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you've made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. For Pharaoh, this question is a challenge, even a statement of his own lordship over these people. For the foremen of Israel, they're thinking, who is the Lord? It looks like Pharaoh. Let's go with him. Let's put our chips on him. Then Moses is the third stakeholder here in this chapter, and he's got his own version of the question. Moses gets blamed by the foremen of Israel for everything that's happened, and Moses immediately passes the buck. He passes the blame right back up to God. I think of this ne- these next verses as his version of the question that Pharaoh had raised. This is what Moses says. Mer- Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. You see what he's asking here? Like, who are you, Lord? What are you doing here? You haven't delivered your people at all. For Moses, this initial resistance from Pharaoh, it, it evacuates, invalidates, it sets off, sets aside what the Lord had promised to do. For him, it was, if, if this is what's happening now, then all that he promised for the future can't be trusted either. How can you deliver on all the things you've said you'd do if you can't or won't stop this? Why would you send me if you only intended to make things work? So from here, from here, what we need to ask of the text is how does, how does what God says next answer Moses' question? The question has been raised, who is the Lord, really? The next two chapters and the rest of the plague's story answer that question. I want to start pointing you towards that answer this morning. First, by looking at the the, the first few verses of chapter 6. Think about how does God's response to what Moses has just challenged him with answer Moses' question. Why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? You haven't delivered us at all. What's this all about? I want to give you an answer in two parts. The first one comes out in chapter 6. Pharaoh has raised this question. He has staked his claim. And the Lord says in chapter 6, verse 1, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. Pharaoh has made his move. Here comes mine. What comes next in verses 2 to 8? It's really the, the whole story of Exodus boiled down to its, to its essence. 
I'm going to read through these verses in a moment. You might want to just flag them in your own Bibles. If you're, if you're the type that writes in your Bible, you want a good summary of the message of the whole book, what it's for and what it says, these verses give it to you. I want us to spend a few, a few minutes here on them. I'm going to read through them in just a minute. But, but before I read through them, so that you can know what you're looking at when we read through them, I want you to notice something about verse 3. What he says in verse 3, what the Lord says in verse 3 is that I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, your forefathers. I appeared to them as God Almighty. But, he says, by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. What's that about? The Lord, that's a title for God. It's often often spoken as Yahweh. It's a special name that he reveals to his people so that they know who he is and who, who is their God over them. What does he mean when he says, by my name, the Lord, I didn't make myself known to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? That that word was used. He did tell them that name. So what did he not tell them that he's going to tell this people now through Moses and Israel? What is he revealing now that he hadn't revealed before? Here's the way one writer put it. I think it makes so much sense of what's going on overall in the story. This writer says that the name that was unknown to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in other words, wasn't the label. The label had been used, Yahweh. What what wasn't known to them was the character of the Lord as the supreme redeemer. That's what's about to get shown. And that's a characteristic of the Lord that Israel hadn't known and could not have known apart from being delivered from bondage, end of quote. In other words... He's about to tell them who he is in a way that could not be separated from their their plight, from their bondage, from their suffering. It's through their suffering that he shows them who he is, that he shows them something their forefathers could not have seen yet, could not have understood or grasped. Now, I think that that is exactly what's going on here. And I think now as I read through this section, you'll be able to see it. Listen to how God fills out the name of the Lord in these verses. The verses begin in, cha- in, in verse 2 with a statement, I am the Lord. They end in verse 8 with that same statement, I am the Lord. And everything in between shows us what it means that he is the Lord. It's the name revealed, unpacked in a way that was new. Listen to how he does it. Listen to what he's emphasizing. I also establish my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, listen to this. This is where he starts to unpack their situation. I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. And I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob I will give it to you for a possession I am the Lord if you think about all of these promises all of these I will statements as showing us, revealing what it means that he is the Lord. Look how many of these statements don't make any sense apart from their suffering. 
I have heard your groaning. I am the Lord. I am the Lord who will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I am the Lord who will deliver you from slavery. I am the Lord who will redeem you, who will take you to be my people, who will bring you into the land. You see what he's doing? I think it's way more than just reassurance. It's more than just recapping promises he already made. A lot of these had been, had been made already in earlier chapters. I think what he's doing here in these verses is directly responding to Moses' questions at the end of chapter 5. Moses is asking, what are you doing here? Why did you even send me if you were only going to make things worse? And what God is doing here is changing Moses' view of their suffering. This suffering is not unintended. This suffering is how he shows them who he is. It's not a diversion. It's a pathway, a necessary path to learning his power and his intent to redeem. Yes, this suffering is painful. Yes, it's serious, serious enough that God is about to do something. It's serious to him as well as to Israel. But this suffering, whatever else it is, whatever else is going on, this suffering is part of his plan. I was talking to a friend this week who gave me a really insightful perspective on this idea. He was talking about our tendency, I so see myself, to idolize relief when we're in the middle of a hard season. Like to look ahead to when it'll be done, you know, and just long for that and wait and want and want it. To just put everything on being through in the middle of a hard season. I do that all the time. Like what would it be like to wake up in the morning and not immediately remember the cares that I went to sleep with? What would that be like? What would, be, what would it be like to just be able to, to just hang out and enjoy a nice evening without having to worry about the things that I'd failed in earlier that day or the things I knew were coming tomorrow that I wasn't going to be up to or the relationships that, that are strained that I can't fix? What would it be like to, to live carefree and I idolize it and long for it? And this friend was saying that, you know, what, what, when, when that's the way we live, when we're only thinking about when it's over, what we can miss out is how formative, how powerful the season of suffering actually is. That it's in this place that we meet God in a new way. That we learn of his goodness and his ability to deliver. That we are shaped into people who trust him more than we could have without the pain. It's in the pain that we meet God. Why would we not want to stay there with him? I think it's a profound encouragement that we need to hear and a great way to capture the point of this part of the story. Moses is asking, who is the Lord? Why have you done this evil? And what we see here is not an explanation. It is not a theoretical or systematic breakdown of the problem of evil. But what we see, as far as it goes, is encouraging. Verse 7, you will see, you will know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you under, from under the burdens of the Egyptians. You will learn things about me through this suffering you couldn't have learned apart from it. We talked about this a lot in First Peter when we were studying that back in the fall. 
especially in First Peter chapter one, where it talks about the afflictions that we, that we live with that are preparing us, that are purging us, that are testing us so that we can be purified like gold that's been refined in fire, that they're part of the plan. And you guys will have to forgive me for reusing an analogy that helped me then that I think helps us understand what Moses is doing here. You'll have to forgive me or just deal with it because I'm using it. There was, there was an analogy I stole from somebody else about uh, how, how much we come to appreciate our furnaces or our, our, our central heat if we have it during weeks like the one we just had, you know, where we have, we have whole days that are down in the, the teens, the 20s, that when it's, when it's a day like this, you don't feel your need for that heater if you have one. You, you don't feel the need of it because your, your temperature is just fine as it is. and It doesn't even need to come on. But when it gets cold, that heater kicks on. The colder it gets outside, the hotter it burns, the more you see what you need from it. The more you experience its power, the more you recognize and value what it brings to your life. That's what suffering can do for the Christian. The colder it gets, the hotter he burns. And I think that's what God is trying to remind Moses of here. This is not off script. This is not a diversion. This is a pathway. Even the worst before it gets better is a pathway into you learning who I am on a level that you couldn't have otherwise. Now, what I want to do, we're going we're to continue that theme in, in weeks to come. That's a major theme in this, letter, or in this book, rather. What I want to do for the minutes we have left this morning is show you another side to the answer that God gives to the question that Pharaoh raises. Who is the Lord, really, he's asked. He's staked his own claim to an answer to that question. I am the Lord. These people are mine. They do what I tell them to do, and they do it for me. What we're going to see in chapter 7 is God answering that challenge once and for all. The answer, the part two answer to who is the Lord is that Pharaoh is not. The answer part one is, I am the Lord, the one who's going to redeem and bring good out of this suffering that you're into right now. That's who I am. The answer part two is that he is not, no matter what he's done, no matter how powerful he looks, no matter how weak you are before him and how unable you are to free yourself from these burdens, that man is not the Lord. That's the point of chapter seven. It's in this section where the Lord tells Moses again what he's about to do. He's about to humble this man who had put himself in God's place. Look at verses 1 to 5 of chapter 7 with me. The Lord said to Moses, See, I've made you like God to Pharaoh. In other words, you will speak for me. When Pharaoh sees you, he'll hear and see for me. Your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. You see how he's answering Pharaoh's question. They will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Now let me tell you as clearly as I can what I think 
is going on in this, in this little paragraph. Then we're going to talk about the questions it raises for us. I think the point is clear enough. I think it raises complicated questions. I think the point is that this Pharaoh, this Pharaoh who has challenged God, who is the Lord, and stakes his own claim to the title, this Pharaoh, far from being Lord over the earth, isn't even Lord of his own heart. He's not even his own master, much less the master of anything else. He is himself, even at the level of his heart, under God's sovereign control. And God is hardening him. God is increasing this stubbornness so that it will be obvious to everyone, not just to Israel, but also to Egypt, who is really the Lord. He is setting him up, propping him up, so that he can flatten him down. If Pharaoh had sent out Israel quickly, without a fight, if he just said, oh yeah, that makes sense. I guess they should really go and worship their God out in the wilderness. Sure, go for it. That might look like Pharaoh's decision. It might be another type of lordship Pharaoh was exercising over the situation. Yes, from my position of authority I say, go ahead, do what you will. But Pharaoh's stubbornness, this extra load of cruelty that he's put on top of Israel's burden... What if, think of that as this man flexing his muscles, standing before a challenger, bowing up, showing his power in, the, in the, the largest scale that he can, and God encouraging that so that when he wins his victory over him, the victory will shine out with the glory it deserves. He's flexing his muscles to the max so that when he goes down, Everyone watching will know that only one God rules and nothing will stop him from being injustice to the oppressed. Think of this, in other words, as a kind of judo move on God's part. I think it's judo where you use the momentum of the person who's attacking you to basically flip them over and defeat them. Don't correct me now if I'm wrong, but you can talk to me later. I, I, imagine that that's what judo is. You know, the guy comes running at you, he's even bigger than you are, and you just, you just go with him, you dodge, you go with him, and you throw him down, you slam him down on the ground. You're using his momentum, his attempt to bow up and take you out, to defeat him. There's an irony in it, a beautiful irony in that way of attack. And that's exactly what we see God doing here and all through the scriptures. He loves to take the power of the powerful and use it against them, turn it on its head so that they see just how limited their power really was. So in all of this flexing, in Pharaoh's counter-moving, he's only bringing to the surface, only highlighting who is really the Lord. And flattening this man is going to be how God, the one true God of all that is, shows us who he is. In the next two weeks, we're going to watch it happen. I think that's the clear meaning of this paragraph. I don't think there's a lot of ambiguity here. God is sovereign over the evil that Pharaoh is committing. But for all the clarity of, the, of, of, of that point, it raises questions that are anything but clear. I think it communicates a difficult but really consistent truth from the Bible that I want to finish with this morning. It's hard. It's a hard truth because this, this text and others like it that speak of God's control even over the evil that other people are doing. It, it lays side by side two claims that we just can't reconcile but that show up in this story, just this one story, 
and that show up in other places too throughout the Bible. On one side, every person is responsible, accountable before God for everything they do. Everything they do, they choose to do. They want to do. They are free in that sense in doing. The Bible is really consistent and clear and Pharaoh is described that way here. Before God gets to chapter seven and is telling Moses he's gonna harden Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh's heart is already turned against him. When, when, when Moses goes to him in chapter five, what does he say? Who is the Lord? He's completely hardened to the pain of Israel. He adds to it right there. And then in chapter eight, verse 13, we're told that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. That by the same author that says God hardens him here. So on one side, the Bible's really clear. Humans are responsible for everything they do. It's real. We should be accountable. But then right next to that, in this story and throughout the Bible, we see God having a sovereignty over evil that doesn't stop even at the boundaries of an individual's heart. How do you reconcile that? That they're free and responsible for what they do at the same time that God is using what they do for his own purposes and never surprised or threatened by their claims to his throne. Friends, the Bible doesn't reconcile this, and I certainly can't. Romans 9 actually raises this exact situation, talks about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, and says, I know what you're thinking. Why do you still find fault with him, Lord? Who can resist your will? And the answer that Paul gives is, who are we to ask, answer back to God? Like, he is the great I am, and we are not. Some of us, we, we, so, so at some level, all of us are just going to have to accept that he's bigger than our categories. But with all that said, I don't think we have to understand how these truths can hold together and to be encouraged by them this morning. And I want to point you to two things, just simple statements that you need to know to hold on to this story and to be encouraged by this difficult truth. Friends, you need to know first that God's sovereignty over Pharaoh's evil is essential to your hope for justice. God's sovereignty over Pharaoh's evil is essential to your hope for justice. We know that the world is full of oppression like we're reading about here. This wasn't a one-time thing. It wasn't something that belonged just to the primitive world, to times when Pharaoh's ruled. It's it's everywhere. And it's it's from the large-scale oppressive regimes and tyrants and empires to the mid-tier drug kingpins and and, and traffickers to the, to the lower level payday loans companies and prison guards who use power to steal from those they guard or the exploitation of landlords who, who know they have people between a rock and a hard place to, a, to the, ex, the exploitation and oppression of a, of a father who's abusive to his children or to his wife. We know injustice is rampant and we also know that we don't see justice realized in this life. Who's going to make that right? People live with that kind of power and control over others and die in luxury. What we need to know is that ultimate justice depends on a God who is sovereign over evil no matter the power behind it. How can you do anything to try to help those who are suffering injustice if you think you've got to be able to carry it from A to Z? Because, friends, you can't. You are going to die with injustice reigning all around you. And your only hope For the justice you crave is a God who will not stop at the hearts of evil men who do what they will, but who is sovereign enough to to crush them in his time. 
All of our hope rests on a God who's big enough to do that work. And a God who's big enough to do that work is a God who's big enough to explode my categories that I might use to try to understand them. Finally, you need to know that God's sovereignty over Pharaoh's evil is essential to your hope for redemption. A God who's sovereign over evil is a God who can bring good out of it. A God who can bring good beyond what I can see, much less control. And this is the God of the Bible that Exodus reveals to us. He's the one who is really the Lord. Not merely reacting to evil. Not merely trying to contain it or redirect it, but ruling over it and guiding it towards his ends. He's the God who uses the momentum of the powers that be against them to bring good out of what they meant for harm. That's the point of the Exodus story, and it's also the point of the gospel. When Peter, the apostle, preached his first sermon on Pentecost, when he stood before those who had crucified Jesus, literally run him out of the world, he said to them, This Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God who is sovereign, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Do you see it? Evil they're responsible for. Evil planned by God so that he could bring good out of it. God has raised him up, Peter said, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. A God who is sovereign over the evil, even that Pharaoh did, is the God who can bring redemption from evil and all our hopes rest on this God. Father, we pray that you would help us to trust you through this story where you've shown yourself to us so clearly. And we pray that what we see of you in Exodus would drive us to what we see of you in the gospel. A God who knows how to use even the great evil that was crucifying an innocent man to bring life and peace from it. To use that great evil to overthrow the power of death itself and to purchase forgiveness and redemption for anyone who trusts in you. Our only hope, as those who know evil is in our hearts as well as Pharaoh, is in your ability to sovereignly bring good out of what we have brought to this world. And we trust you to do that work now. Our only hope in life and in death. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.